Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put, him to sh put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had borne a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. In September, we as a community took part in the Feast of Jonah. During the church service, the first 15 verses of the book of Jonah were read, outlining the prophet's flight from God, the storm on the ship, and the sailors throwing Jonah overboard in an attempt to appease his God. And for the past three months, we have been left with Jonah wet and sinking. During this time of darkness, of death, of contemplation, Russell led a flash fiction Bible study on the book of Jonah. The study was only four weeks long, corresponding to the four books or the four chapters of the book. Each week, we read the text, discussed it, and then wrote about it, finding cracks or crevices that either excited us or bothered us. There's a lot to be bothered by in the book of Jonah. A short recap for those who haven't read the book. The word of God comes to Jonah saying to preach destruction on Nineveh. Jonah flees God on a boat. God pursues Jonah in a windy storm, and Jonah is thrown overboard. God provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, prays, and is vomited out. Again, the word of God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes and proclaims to the city that they will be destroyed in 40 days. Nineveh repents. Jonah goes up onto a hill to watch the destruction, but God shows compassion on Nineveh. The city stands. Jonah is mad. God provides a plant to shade Jonah's head, and Jonah is happy, but he still doesn't get it. God provides a worm to destroy the plant. Jonah is distraught over the loss of the plant and still doesn't get it. God provides a destructive wind. Jonah still doesn't get it and wants to die. He is angry that God is showing compassion and not wrath. God wonders how that can make Jonah mad. The book has no real ending that provides any closure, and we are left with God asking Jonah, 
How can I destroy Nineveh? What about the cattle? The book of Jonah is a satire. The thing about satire is that it's great fun if it's directed at your enemies, but if the satire is directed at you, it gets tiresome. And besides that, no one in the, in the book is really all that likable. Jonah is pouty and vengeful. Nineveh is way over the top, glee style in their repentance. And God comes across as really antagonistic. I mean, it's really great that God shows compassion on Nineveh, but the relationship between God and Jonah seems so dysfunctional, like really dysfunctional. And it can be hard reading the book, knowing that it's part of our spiritual text. This is our God. By week three of the study, with the gourd and the worm and the wind and God seeming to push all of Jonah's buttons, I had really all I could take. And when it came to write at the end of the evening, all I could think of was, I think I'm sick of God. And that's bad. What's worse is that I wrote it down. I am sick of God. And then I shared it with the group. Like I said it out loud, in front of a pastor even. I mean, granted, it was Russell. <laughs> and if you're going to say something like that, it really ought to be someone like Russell or Debbie, where you know you're not going to be judged or put on a prayer list or quietly never asked to come to Bible study again. But it doesn't change the fact that I said it out loud in front of really good, decent people. It became a reality. Sonia is sick of God. It didn't feel good to say. And that night was a stormy one. Literally, there was like 50 mile per hour winds, rain, and maybe even hail later on that night. It was a night that no one should have been out driving, even if it was to study the word of God. I was on my way home and I had just crossed the river on Lake Street and was making my way into St. Paul. There was a bunch of construction going on in those big orange and white traffic barrels we're in the middle, lining the street. As I was approaching my turn at Creton, I see a traffic barrel flying head over heel in my direction. I slam on the brakes just in time for the barrel to veer left and miss my car. It rolls past and crashes into the curb and then rolls back and barely temp taps my front bumper. You would think something like that would cause me to pause and readjust my surly attitude. But I look at the barrel, and then I look up at the night sky, and I say, bring it on. <laughs> but fortunately, God is compassionate, patient, kind, and of good humor, and I made it home alive. But the next morning, I woke up with a furrowed brow and clenched jaw, still surly. I was driving on my way to work, driving southbound on 35E, when a thought came into my head. You're not really sick of God, Sonia. To which I replied in my thought voice, Oh, yes, I am. And as I approached my exit for Highway 52, I divulged that although I was sick of God, I didn't want to be. Then I'm about to cross the river again, this time leaving St. Paul, when an other voice enters my thoughts and says, You're not sick of me, sassy pants. You might be sick of Jonah, but you're not sick of me. To which I replied in my thought voice, go on. But the other voice didn't answer. 
I'm at my favorite point in my morning commute. I look to my left and the sun is rising over the river, casting shadows on the bluff. To my right, the morning light is playing off the water and the steam is rising from the riverbanks. Windows are shining with a warm glow. My brow softens and my jaw unclenches and I think of cattle. My voice, my thought voice throws up her hands and says out, lets out a sigh and says, okay, fine, I agree. You're compassionate, but what about the board, the worm and the wind? All those things that you provided for Jonah. I mean, I kind of like the fish, even though it's dark and slimy, but what about the rest? I just don't get it. The other voice says to my thought voice, you don't have to. The compassion is enough for now. And I begin to cry. The other voice offers me a tissue. The thing about looking at stuff in reverse is that it sort of starts to make sense. During this Advent season, we have been revisiting the gifts, if you will, that God provided to Jonah. The wind, the worm, the gourd, and today the fish. And at, what for, and at what at first appeared to be dysfunctional button pushing on God's part was actually a gentle and loving attempt to remove Jonah's spiritual blindness. During Advent, we have been working backwards, and we are now in the belly of the fish. We are in the belly of Mary, awaiting the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of a child being born of a virgin. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He will save us from sin. Even though the original prophecy Matthew quotes, the one found in Isaiah, is actually about a child that would be born to be a sign of Judah, or a sign to Judah promising God's protection. It's also a sign of Judah's coming destruction. I didn't get too worked up by this because I saw it, saw it through what I thought was the Jonah lens. God is compassionate. The destruction happens so creation can begin. We don't need to fear the worm, right? So just when I think I can finally look at my manger scene and think of Jonah with a warm feeling in my heart, I keep reading. In Matthew, babies get killed because of the birth of Jesus. Mothers weep. But then there's a big section of Jesus teaching how to react to violence with nonviolence. And I think, good, it's getting better. But then it's followed by this huge section of a very apocalyptic nature describing how God is going to reckon with evildoers. Goats will be separated from the sheep. There's gnashing of teeth and people are being thrown into the fiery furnace. And right in the thick of all that wrath and destruction, the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask for a sign. Jesus says the only sign that will be given to such a wicked and adulterous generation will be, be the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. And then there's more talk of judgment and condemnation and death. So just when I think I am not sick of God or Jonah, I read about the sign. Jonah, the guy is everywhere, hanging around like a rain cloud. So God hands me a tissue with one hand, but then stokes the fire with the other. Is that it? 
During Advent, we meditate not only on the first advent of Christ, but also on the second coming of Christ. So much is unclear, and it's often read and interpreted in a very violent and wrathful way. I often want to throw up my hands and say, I just don't get it. Where's the peace in all of this? But then the other voice says, read it again. And I've learned a thing or two since our first conversation, so my thought voice simply says, okay. The sign of Jonah, the son of man in the heart of the earth for three days. It's the resurrection. The sign of Jonah is the resurrected lamb for whom death does not exist. In the middle of all that imagery of wrath, destruction, and carnage, the sign given to the wicked and adulterous generation is God sacrificing himself. So we never have to see that. We never have to feel the heat of the fiery furnace. The sign of the prophet Jonah is life in God's embrace. The sign of Jonah is God beating his sword into plowshares. The sign of Jonah is God studying war, no more but delivering mercy. The last chapter of the book of Matthew ends with the resurrected Christ saying, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age present tense. I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us now, continuing to be with us until the end. Which brings me back to the beginning. And this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God starts at the beginning, not with grand entrances or flashing lights, but with a little tiny naked body, with embryonic fluids still clinging to the creases and folds of his little toes and fingers, elbows and thighs, his little wet mouth searching for Mary's breast to feed his hungry belly. God with us, in a very real way, reaches out to creation, empties himself and becomes helpless, needing creation to take hold of him in order that we may see, smell, touch, and kiss the face of God. Again, I begin to cry. Again, the other voice reaches out and offers me a tissue. I, in turn, reach out and allow his tiny hand to wrap itself around my finger.